Father, we do thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. The One who paid the price for our sins. Who redeemed us from our sins. Lord, we thank You that You illumined our hearts to see our sinfulness. That You revealed Your Son, Jesus, through the Gospel. And Father, I pray for those of us here who know You that we would now grow that you would use your word this morning to weed out sin, to refine us, to purify us, to make us like your son. I pray we would respond rightly to what you have revealed in your word. And I pray for those who don't know you, Lord God, that uh, you would work in their hearts, that you would break down the hardness, that you would help them understand and see themselves rightly and then see your son Jesus rightly, and turn to him. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for this time together, and we pray it would continue to glorify you. In your son's precious name, amen. Well, I'm sure you'll all acknowledge and admit that uh, when we go through difficulties and trials and suffering, it's not very fun. It's uh, by nature, suffering is suffering, isn't it, Right? By nature, trials are trials, and by nature, difficulty is difficulty. And when we go through those things, it is tempting to become discouraged. It is tempting to lose heart in the midst of those difficulties. It's tempting not to be joyful. We know the commands in the book of Philippians, rejoice always, and again I will say rejoice, but sometimes we have a hard time rejoicing. Now as we go through these trials, I believe... The Lord God's will is, as we will see, for us to rejoice. To rejoice in the midst of difficulties. To rejoice in the midst of suffering. To rejoice in the midst of trials because of what he is doing and what it will do to glorify him. And that's what we're going to see today, how we can have joy in the midst of suffering. We're going to finish what we began last week, where we're going to see the Apostle Paul's righteous and godly inspired perspective on life and death. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 26. 21 to 26. Now you'll remember that Acts 16 describes the founding of the church at Philippi in 52 AD, 20 years after the day of Pentecost. And we know that the Apostle Paul received his marching orders by the Spirit of God to go to Macedonia through through a vision, and he left with his companions to Europe, crossing the Aegean Sea to Philippi to preach the gospel. And we know he preached the gospel to the women down at the river, and Lydia and her household came to faith. And we know that he was thrown wrongly, him and Silas, into prison and beaten. And and even in prison, beaten, they were singing praises to God and hymns. And the prisoners were listening. And the Lord God caused a great earthquake. As we see in Acts 16, and all the shackles and the doors were opened. And the the jailer thought they've escaped, so he was going to kill himself. And Paul said, stop, we're all here. And within that, the, the jailer, who must have heard the truth about salvation because they were pagans, had heard it from Paul and Silas, said, what must I do to be saved? And the Apostle Paul declared, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And he preached the word, shared the word with him. Him and Silas shared the word with the the jailer and his household and they were saved. The tremendous nucleus of the Philippian church, 
Now about 10 years has gone by and the Apostle Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He is under arrest for the gospel and he is about to be presented possibly at this point before Caesar. He thinks that that's imminent and as we'll see later on that his life is possibly going to be taken or he may live. He's not fully sure but we'll see he has an idea in the Lord what the Lord is going to do. This is one of the four prison epistles, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon, and most likely, as I shared, written about 10 years after the founding of the church in 52 AD, so around 62. And we know from this letter and from other portions that the Apostle Paul was very close to the Philippians. We know that the Philippians had sent Epaphroditus to him, that's a long way from Philippi to Rome, to minister to him and to give him a message, to send a message to him. And he had gotten sick. We'll see that later on in chapter 2. And they were very concerned about him. But that arose initially from their concern about the Apostle Paul. They loved the Apostle Paul. They were the only church that had supported him at times. And so there was a very close relationship with the Philippian church. And now at this point, we come to the letter in which the Apostle Paul in the beginning encourages these Philippians He reminds them that when he is thinking about them, he is caused to rejoice concerning them. He is thankful for God's past work in them, and he is confident that God will complete the work until the day of Christ Jesus. And then the Apostle Paul prayed for these Philippians. He prayed for them that their love in Christ would abound in in true knowledge and all discernment so that they would be able to, by the Spirit of God, make right choices, approve the things that are excellent, approve the differing things, demonstrate in that sense, which will ultimately glorify God. And then in chapter 1, we saw the beginning of Paul's correspondence with the Philippians, these dear believers And you'll remember he started to share his terrible circumstances of imprisonment. But in the context of God's glorious plan, that that in, 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 in spite of the imprisonment, God had used his word, or the imprisonment, to spread his word. That the gospel was not imprisoned. But God was using it, and Paul rejoiced that this imprisonment brought about this spreading of the gospel, even uh, to those of Caesar's household. And that there were other believers who were, who were emboldened to speak the word fearlessly because of what had happened to the Apostle Paul. And then last week we began to see how we can remain joyful in the midst of suffering. And we saw specifically that God uses trials to magnify Jesus. To magnify Christ. And if you desire Christ to be magnified, then when he is magnified through your trials, you're going to... Rejoice, because that's what you get joy in. So with this in mind, how can we have joy in the midst of suffering? Again, turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 26. I'm going to read those first, and we're going to go back and see what precedes it. Philippians 1.21 For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud 
confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through the com- through my coming to you again. So we need to recognize again if we are true believers we're going to suffer for Jesus at times and it's going to be difficult. But I believe we're going to see here today we're going to see today that we can rejoice in the context of what God has done. We can rejoice. And you might remember we saw a few weeks ago that Paul recognized his terrible circumstances were, were part of God's grand plan, and the gospel went out, and he praised God and rejoiced in that. Look back in verse 12. Now I want you to know, my brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress, the pioneer progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment or my chains or bonds for the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. That's Caesar's Guard, his, his elite troops, and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting or having confidence, as we saw in the Lord, because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear, or literally fearlessly. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And he says, and in this I rejoice, and I will rejoice. You see, when God uses trials and difficulties to bring about the proclamation of Jesus, that should give us joy. That should give us joy. When the very thing that we think is a bad thing, God uses as a good thing to open the door for the gospel, while we have hope, while we are different in the midst of this, it's a wonderful thing that we can praise and rejoice in. Rejoice in. And then last week, you'll remember we saw we will experience joy when it is our heart's desire, and I'm talking about the inside, our heart's desire for Christ to be magnified. Indeed, remember, we saw that Paul rejoiced that he knew God would answer prayers and empower him to speak of Jesus, thus magnifying Christ, whether he lives or dies. This is what we looked at last week. Look at verse 19. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ even shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You remember we saw last week, Paul is explaining, he is giving another reason why he can rejoice in the midst of terrible physical circumstances being imprisoned and chained to a Roman guard 24-7. And there are things that God has allowed you to be imprisoned to, and you can have the right attitude or the wrong attitude. We can have the right attitude or the wrong attitude. Paul had the right attitude because he knew that God would turn this out for his deliverance. He says here, this deliverance spoke of Paul's vindication, as we see, as he quotes Job chapter 13, verse 16. We saw that last week. Most likely there were those who were saying Paul's in prison because he had sinned. Well, the reality is Paul wasn't in prison because he had sinned. He was in prison for the gospel. And he says, I know this shall turn out for my deliverance or vindication, we saw, through what? Your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. 
God delivers, God vindicates, God empowers us to do what he wants us to do in answer to prayer by the power of his spirit. He knew the Philippians were praying for him. And he knew that he would not be in any way put to shame. Notice what he says in verse 20. According to my earnest expectation hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything. But in contrast that with all boldness, so that term boldness means freeness of speech. Freeness of speech. Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted, megaluno, magnified in my body, whether by life or death. Even now, as always, exalted. We should be able to say that in our lives. And if we can't, we, we should want to say that. Even now, as always, Christ magnified in my life. Do you seek to magnify Christ in your life? Do you seek to have him exalted? Do you seek for him to be exalted? The Apostle Paul was about to go before Nero, or not, or not Nero, but before Caesar. He's about to go before him. And he knew that he may live or die. And he knew that through the prayer, answered prayers of the Philippians and the power of the Spirit of God, that he would be able to speak boldly and not be ashamed and not be put to shame. Thus that Christ would be exalted and magnified. And folks, uh, when Christ is exalted, he is shown to be who he is. He is shown to be who he is. He is seen rightfully in his glorious magnificence. His magnificence is revealed and becomes evident. And Paul expects and hopes that Christ will be magnified and his greatness will be revealed. Whether he is released or executed. Whether by life or by death. Paul understood as he abided in Christ, empowered by the Spirit, through answered prayer, that the result would be Christ would be magnified. And as you are in your difficulties, we can know that by answered prayer through the power of God's Spirit, that when he calls upon us to share Christ, that he will enable us to speak boldly that Christ would be magnified. Even now, as always. Folks, for some of you, Christ is not magnified at all in your lives. He's not magnified in your heart. And the world right now thinks very little of Christ He is irrelevant. His glorious work on the cross that brought forgiveness of sins is irrelevant to them. He is not magnified in their view. But as we have seen, God uses suffering, more specifically, spirit-empowered answers to prayer to empower his people, his children, to with boldness to proclaim him in the midst of those difficulties. Why do we have hope in the midst of those things? It's because of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in this world. It is not in this life. You see, believers, if you're caught up in the troubles of this life, you are caught up. The troubles of this life are venues for Christ to be magnified, and we have to renew our minds in this. It doesn't mean we don't cast our cares upon him. It doesn't mean we don't have the temptation to be anxious, but we cast those things on him. We pray. We we desire him to be glorified, him to be magnified. And if this is not the case with you, The wonderful thing is that you can just confess. You can acknowledge fully what God says about it. It's wrong. Confess it and be forgiven. And turn and desire in your heart of hearts to have Christ magnified. Let me ask you this. In the things you're going through, is your ultimate desire that Jesus is exalted in it? 
that Jesus is magnified, the ultimate goal in what I am going through right now is it that Jesus is exalted. If it isn't, you're not going to be joyful. You're not going to be joyful because joy comes when Christ is magnified, when Christ is exalted, when Christ is glorified. So what we see here, the Apostle Paul could say, even now, as always, be exalted, Christ be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Whatever happens, I live or die, that Christ would be magnified. Doesn't this change our view of our problems? Doesn't it change our view of our difficulties? And we are so tempted to see our trials so large, and they are large, but they're not large in light of what God wants to do. He's a gracious, good, merciful God who will give you the strength to endure, to make it through, but also that within that, he would be magnified and glorified. So often in Christians' lives, I don't see Christ magnified. At times in my life, I don't see him magnified. We fail. We fail where he is not the, the desire of our heart to be exalted in these things. But that's what he'll do if we're willing to see it rightly and we're willing to trust him. And Paul is a perfect example of this for us, an inspired example. So with that in mind, how can we experience joy in the midst of suffering? First of all, as we saw last week, we need to have a mindset and a desire for Christ to be magnified, to be exalted in everything, to be seen for who he really is in everything. And that starts with seeing him for who he really is in your own life first and then magnifying him. And then we get to our passage here where we saw in verse 21 an explanation for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Again, many Christians have this as their life verse and this is a good verse, but I believe many of the same may not have ever understood this verse in its context. And that's what we're seeing right now. The Apostle Paul is explaining here. He is, he is explaining a summary of his life's perspective. He's saying, this is what in me is really going on. And folks, we will experience joy when we have the same perspective, when we have a yielded heart to Christ. When our heart is yielded no matter what might happen. And for Paul here, these are the two extreme possibilities, life or death, by the way whether in life or death. It can't get any worse, physically speaking, than death, right? That's the worst it can get. And we see that he has a yielded heart. He understood his reason for living was to serve Christ, as we're going to see. And if he died, that he would be with him. To serve him is needed. To be with him is much better, as we're going to see. Again, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's explaining the four, explaining how whether by life or death, Christ will be exalted in Paul's body. As he declares with boldness, empowered by the Spirit through answered prayer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever the circumstances, and you see now what is going on in the heart of the Apostle Paul. For to me, and we looked at this last week, for to me, you could literally translate it this way, for to me, to be living, present tense, to be living Christ. To die, point in time, gain. To be living Christ. To die, gain. 
we're going to see the Apostle Paul is yielded. He wants Christ to be magnified whether he lives or dies. And this is the mindset underneath that. And if you don't have this mindset, then you're not going to want Christ to be magnified. You're going to want to maybe deal with your circumstances, whatever it might be. But for Paul, for to me, to be living Christ, to die is gain. The reason Paul was alive and the motivation for all he does in life was simply one thing, Christ. And we're going to see in a moment what that means. It's not simply just good feelings about Jesus. To me, it's just to think about Jesus and good feelings. That's not what he's saying. And as I shared last week, I think by looking at the alternatives, we can gain an idea maybe of what he is saying. Think about these statements. For some, to be living is gaining wealth. For some, to be living, getting out of debt, whatever it might be. For some, to be living, seeking pleasure. For some, to live, it is sports or, or whatever it might be. For some, to live is fame or recognition. That's what they live for. For some to live, it's work. For some to live, it's power. For some to live, it's church. For some to live, it is ministry. For some to live, it is family. For some to live, it is friends. For some to live, it is fellowship. May I posit to you and share, if this is the case with you, you have idols in your heart. And that's why so few experience joy, because we live for other things. This life should be wrapped up in the person of Christ, and as we will see, to do his will. And again, this doesn't mean that we don't love church, fellowship, family, and friends. It doesn't mean we don't work or relax at times. It doesn't mean those things. What it means is that in everything we do, we're desiring Christ to be magnified to be exalted, to live, to be alive on this earth, to breathe and be have our hearts beating, is Christ. That's what Paul says. Christ was the living reality for the Apostle Paul. And he did everything he did to magnify him, and that's why he could rejoice no matter what. That's why he could say later on, rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. Because if you're living for Christ, as we're going to see, no matter what happens, you're not going to lose anything, you only gain. If you're living for Christ, you're not going to lose anything, you're only going to gain. So what do we do if we're not this way? And we're tempted to be this way at times, in and out, throughout the day. We're tempted to not think of Christ as the most important thing. We're not to think of Christ. I want to magnify you in my work, Lord God. I want you to be magnified as I work today. I want you to be magnified in my preaching. I want you to be magnified in my conversations with people. I want you to be magnified in how I raise my kids. I want you to be magnified in everything I do. I'm thinking of you as I do them. What if that's not the case? Confess. Lord, this isn't the way it is in my heart, and I confess it. Help me to see you rightly. Help me to magnify you in my heart and thus desire for you to be magnified. We're going to see that when we get a better view of Jesus, a right view of Jesus, and a right view of ourselves, a desire to magnify him, then we're going to see this to be living is Christ, and to die is gain. So at this point now, the Apostle Paul is going to continue to share his heart and really explain what it means to be living 
Christ? What does it mean in real time for the Apostle Paul? And we're going to see, first of all, his very real dilemma and also his desire. Look at verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, or to be living is Christ, and to die is gain. The context is he may die at the hands of Caesar, or he may be set free, right? But he knows Christ will be magnified because God will answer prayers and empower him by the Spirit to speak truthfully, and he won't be ashamed to speak of Jesus. And now he gives the options. But if I am going to live on in the flesh, this will mean something. This will mean a lot of work for me. Is that what he means? Possibly. What kind of work? This will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He's going to begin to give the explanation to the phrase to live as Christ or to be living as Christ, to die as gain. And he's going to now explain in that regard two different options for him. And within that, we're going to gain an understanding what it means to live for Christ. And notice he says in the end of verse 22, and I do not know which to choose. Or or he says here literally, I don't know what I shall choose. Now this is, on a cursory reading, we might think that Paul gets the choice. Hmm, do I choose to stay on or do I choose to die at the hands of Caesar? That's actually not up to Paul whether he lives or dies. Uh, It's not based on his desire. Actually, this is not the case for any believer. We don't choose when we live or die. We don't choose the future of our lives. So what is Paul saying? I think he might be saying it this way. I do not know which I prefer. I don't know which one I really prefer because he's torn. He's hard-pressed because one is very much better, but one is very needed because he's living for Christ. He says, I don't know which I prefer, basically. He has a desire to depart with Christ. Hey, that is so much better. And, And yes, that's true. But yet Paul is a yielded man. Yielded people... Don't just pick the better thing. Yielded people don't just prefer the better thing. Yielded people are yielded to Christ. He's faced with two possible outcomes before going before Caesar. He's either going to live or die. And each one of them has implications. And as we'll see, he prefers one, yet he is a yielded man. He desires to do God's will. And he loves the Philippians, so he's in the middle and notice this word, verse, in verse 23. But I am hard-pressed from both directions. The term means hemmed in, pressed in. To go to be at the Lord is so much better. But the Philippians need God's work through the Apostle Paul. And he's yielded. And he's willing. So he's in the middle. He's in the middle. And I don't know which to choose or prefer a yielded man to Christ. One is much better, but he doesn't know what to choose. Folks, these two realities are what encompasses every Christian on a daily basis. To live as Christ, to die as gain. That's really the reality for a Christian. So with this in mind, he's going to share these two possibilities, and we're going to gain understanding. You might want to flip in your notes. Number two is going to be number three. Number three is going to be number two there. Just remember that. 
So with this in mind, let's see what to be living in Christ means as we see Paul speaks of necessary fruitful labor according to his will for their progress join the faith. Look at verse 22 again. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed in both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. And we'll look at that 23 in a moment. Paul is faced with the reality of death, but he recognized it was very, and it was very much better. But he recognized remaining for the sake of the Philippians was necessary. And notice in verse 22 that it would mean, it would mean something. If I stay on in the flesh, it means this. It means fruitful labor for him. Fruitful labor. You see, if you're a servant of Jesus Christ, we're here to serve Jesus. If you are on this earth and you believe in Jesus, we're here to labor for him. We're here to labor for him in our families, according to his will and his word. We're here to labor for him at our work, according to his word. We're here to labor in the midst of good in our goings. We're here to labor in the midst of our serving at church. We're here to serve Jesus in every aspect of our lives. And Paul knew if he stayed, there would be fruitful labor. He's talking about work or labor that bears fruit as he lives for the will of Christ. This is his desire. And folks, we have been saved to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is when we abide in Jesus Christ alone that we will produce fruit. Look at John 15. John 15. When we start to get it through our head that in raising our kids, in going to work, in our goings, at church, in everything we do, we're serving Jesus, wanting him to be glorified. Things are going to change in our lives. John chapter 15, Lord Jesus shares in the night he is betrayed, verse 1. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it might bear more fruit. You are already clean. Now in chapter 13, that speaks of salvation because of the word he has spoken to his disciples. Because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide, remain, rest, trust, right? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the mindset we need to have. We are here on earth to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. To remain means fruitful labor. To die is gain. But unfortunately for many of us, to remain means doing my will rather than his will. This fruitful labor is in his will. There are many passages that speak of the truth of when someone comes to faith. We used to serve sin and, 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 and death in a sense. The, the results of that was to live in the context of death. And yet Jesus Christ saved us and we have a great master who loves us. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is what the Lord shares through Moses to Israel as they're about to enter the land. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12. And as you're turning there, you might remember in the beginning of this letter, the Apostle Paul identified himself and Timothy as bondservants of Jesus Christ, of the Lord Jesus. 
Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear your Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your, your God with all your heart, with all your soul. To serve him with all your heart and soul. We should be serving him when we're raising our kids. This is about serving you, Jesus. This is about serving you at my work. This is about serving you when I come and minister at church. This is about serving you, Lord Jesus. It's about serving you. It's about you being magnified. It's about me obeying. A servant obeys their master. I'm going to obey your word in relationship to my children. I'm going to obey your word in relationship to my work. I'm going to obey your word in relationship to those around me. I'm going to confess when I fail. I'm going to obey your word in relationship to the church and how I'm to function here. Later on, chapter chapter 10, verse 20, you shall serve him and cling to him. Chapter 11, verse 13, it shall come about, you listen obedient to me, lead to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. Chapter 11, 16, beware lest your heart be deceived and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. To live is acknowledgement from people. To live is getting by. To live is enduring under all this. To live is my job. To live is... Those are other gods. To live for a believer should be Christ. And as they were going to the land, the Israelites were challenged by Joshua to serve the Lord in truth and sincerity and, and put away the gods their fathers had served. Put away those idols of our hearts and choose this day for yourselves whom you will serve if it is okay with you to do that. Otherwise, go back and serve those gods if it is not okay with you. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Samuel shares, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. What about in the church? You see, because when we serve him and obey his word, guess what? He's glorified in the, in the fruit that results. He's glorified in the fruit that results in our children's lives. He's glorified in the fruit that results at our work. He's glorified in the fruit of the relationships we might have as we're going and are going. He's glorified in those things as we, he uses our, 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 the skills and abilities or the spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. He's glorified. First Peter chapter four, verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it. That means to serve, work it out. In serving what? One another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now these are the these gifts for the body of Christ here. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were, the utterances of God. That's the word of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength that God supplies. And notice here, so that, so that in all things, God may be what? Glorified through Christ Jesus. If you serve the Lord, raising your kids, depending on him, abiding in Christ, he's going to be glorified through Christ Jesus. If you serve him, abiding in him at your work, relying on him, he's going to be glorified through Christ Jesus. You serve him, abiding and remaining in him in the body of Christ, he's going to be glorified through Christ Jesus. To live is Christ, and to remain on means fruitful labor. Fruitful labor. 
back in our passage. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And then notice down in uh, verse 24, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. There was labor in regards to the Philippians. There was a love. Folks, so many Christians do not understand what it means to live on in the flesh for Christ. To live is to be doing His will for His glory in every area. And if you look down in verse 25, we see some of this, basically some of the results that might come from this. It says in verse 25, And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for what? Your progress and joy in the faith. Faith in Jesus. If the Lord keeps me here, it's going to be for your benefit that you grow in Jesus. Progress and joy. You see, that's what Paul is about. He says, I'm convinced of this, I shall remain and continue with you for all for your progress and joy in the faith. To live, or to be living, is Christ. Part of that encompasses serving Christ. But don't misunderstand me. It also implies intimacy. It ultimately implies intimacy in that serving. An intimate relationship with Jesus in the context of serving him. What do we see in Philippians chapter 3? Look at Philippians 3 verse 8. It's not just a mechanical serving of Christ. It's a real relationship with him in which we're abiding in him, growing in him, an intimate relationship with the living God in which we're serving him. Philippians 3.8, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing him. Growing in a relationship with Jesus. Knowing Jesus. Colossians chapter 3. We see that our lives are hidden in Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 3. It's all throughout the Word of God, and we need to be reminded because we get distracted very easily. You wonder how John could write in the very last uh, verse of 1 John. He could say, little children, guard yourself from idols. We live for other things than Jesus. Those are idols, by the way. Those are idols. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is what? Who is our life, is revealed. To live as Christ, it's a real relationship with him, which is manifest in obeying him and loving him and serving him. Turn to Galatians 2.20. Some of you know this verse. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And what? The life which I now live in the flesh. To live, to be living, right? The life I now live, what I live, my life that I live on a daily basis. He says here, I live by what? Faith 
and the Son of God. It's a real relationship with Jesus, trusting and abiding in him and serving him. I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Who loved me and delivered himself up for me. To live is to trust and obey Jesus. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. The Apostle Paul was not self-centered or self-focused. He loved and served Christ, which was manifest in his love for the body of Christ and his obedience and desire to serve the Philippians. Back in our passage in Philippians chapter 1. Notice down in verse 26, we see the results. And we'll come back to this, and I just want to look at it for a second. And convinced of this, verse 25, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Now, the NASB's difficult translation here. Other translations are difficult. Some say rejoice. Actually, the word isn't rejoice. It's boasting. That's what it is in the Greek. And so you could say it this way, literally, so that your boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me. Your boasting in Christ Jesus for what he's doing through me may abound when I come and see you. That Christ may be exalted. That Christ may be magnified when I come to you again that your boasting may abound in Christ Jesus. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Praise the Lord for what he has done. Praise the Lord for what he has done. So I believe he's saying that if he stays in the flesh, it's for their progress and joy in the faith, which will cause boasting in Christ to abound. To abound. It's all about Jesus and being magnified. That's what the Christian life is about. And if you don't see the Christian life like that, maybe you're not a Christian or you have forgotten why God saved you. We certainly can be distracted. We certainly do forget. Paul was not preoccupied with life's circumstances. He was preoccupied with Christ. To know him and please him was Paul's chief aim, and this all resulted in the magnification. Is that the same for you? Lord, I want to magnify you in obeying you with my kids. I want to magnify you in obeying you in my work. I want to magnify you in obeying you in the relationships you put me in. I want to magnify you in how I serve. It's about you, and I trust you, and I'm going to abide in you, and I'm going to rest in you because you're faithful. Yet sometimes we can get sidetracked, and that's when we're not joyful, and we need to be reminded so that we can confess and turn to the Lord. Are you sold out for Christ? So many are sold out for Christ right away when they come to faith, and rightfully so, because they're not, uh, they just, they've, they see the light. They were in darkness. Now they've been forgiven and saved, but then we can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So living for Christ, Paul shares here, is ultimately that he would be magnified and glorified as we trust and rely, abide, and serve him in everything. With that in mind, back in our passage, what does it mean that to die is gain? What does it mean to die is gain? Verse 22, but if I am to live on the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed, I'm hemmed in from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for this, that is very much better. Very much better. 
Paul's continual desire to be with the Lord, and he says it's 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 better, very much better. This is what happens when a believer dies. Very simple theology here. He says here, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. To die is gain. It's advantage, it's profit. He says it is very much better. Folks, we live in a sinful world that is running down. We live in the context of the results of sin, death, sorrow, and pain. And if you love this world, you don't love Jesus. That's the love of Father is not on you. First, uh, first uh, John chapter 2. Yet we as believers are tempted with the affection for the things of the world. But if you love these things, the sinful things of the world, it produces sorrow, pain, and death. But for believers, this is not our home. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that to die is very much better. We are delivered from this sinful, sin-cursed world. We are glorified. No more sin, sorrow, pain, or death. And we are with the Lord and with those who are his. It is very much better. We have a theology of death here. To depart for a believer and be with Christ very much better, right? Think about that. When your loved ones in Christ die, we'll miss them greatly, and we will look forward to seeing them again, but it is very much better for them. It is very much better. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And actually, I'll, I'll quote that. Turn to Luke 16, and I'm going to share 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, We are of good courage, and I say I prefer to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. You see, when we die as believers, our souls and spirit, they go to be with the Lord immediately, and our bodies go into the grave. They go into the grave. For the non-believer, their souls and spirits go to Hades, and their bodies go in the grave. Look at uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Luke 16, 19. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. He wasn't living for Christ, by the way. And a certain poor man named Lazarus who was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. The body went into the grave. And in Hades, he, that's because of the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received the good things, your good things, received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted it's far better he's being comforted but not for those not not in christ notice he says here here and you are in agony and besides all this between us and you there's a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over here from you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us and he said then i beg you father that you send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that, they, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. 
But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. That's the word of God, by the way. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They're going to acknowledge their sin. But he said to them, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. For the believer, it is far better. It is far better. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm not going to read that, but you can read it. The Apostle Paul shares what's going to happen for believers. If we die, our bodies go in the grave, but our spirits go to be with the Lord. And when he comes back, we will come with him, and our bodies will be raised at the same time. We will be changed. And those who are alive and remain will be changed also, and will be with the Lord and our loved ones in Christ forever, and therefore comfort one another with these words. It is much better. It's much better. No more sin, sorrow, pain, troubles. You see, and Paul had the right viewpoint because he realized the sufferings of this life were nothing, not even worthy to be compared. Look at Romans chapter 8. Paul had a right view of life and death. Romans chapter 8. And we can too because we have the scriptures and we have the spirit of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, this is verse 17 in the end, in order that we also we may also be glorified with him. Then notice what Paul says here, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not worthy to even be compared. You're going through suffering? Yes. Paul suffered a lot. And he said it's not even worthy to be compared. To die is very much better. Where we are going is very much better. One last passage on this. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And the context of this is the Apostle Paul saying, we're almost at the point of death, but death works in us and life in you. We almost got killed, but God's using that. Death works in us and life in you. And he's going to share the mindset behind that. 2 Corinthians 4, 15. He says, for all things are for your sake. Could you say that? The way I live is for the body of Christ and other believers, for your sake. Paul says it, all things are for your sake, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God, God glorified. Therefore, in the midst of the difficulties we go through that brings God glory, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. He says, though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. Back in our passage. But I am hard pressed from both directions. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. The reality is, he might be killed by Caesar. 
And if that happens for Paul, this is much better. Much better. Now for my non-believing friends, when you die, the opposite is true. For the unbeliever, death is not very much better. It is very much worse. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Actually, yeah, Luke chapter 12. You see, when you live for this life, you're a fool. Because when your life's required, then you're going to have to be held accountable for your sins. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no places, place to put, store my crops? Verse 18. And he said, then, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Come, take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. In the book of Mark, the Lord Jesus makes it clear, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. To live for yourself, you're going to lose it. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake shall save it. For what shall a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You'll go into eternal torment if you die in your sin. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To die is absolute eternal loss for non-believers. But to die as a believer, it's gain. It's gain. It's gain. So then back in our passage, Paul said it is very much better. And notice what I touched on earlier. Notice Paul's confidence as we finish up. He says... In verse 25, and convinced of this, I know I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith. We already looked at that. But even though he's hard-pressed that the outcome could be death or life, somehow God has given him insight that he's going to remain. I'm convinced. I'm, going, I'm convinced. And that's going to be for their progress and join the faith. That's living is Christ. It's for others. It's for serving Christ. It's for him. It's for his will. His will in my life. His will with my family. His will at my work. His will at church. His will in my interactions. His will. I live for him. I live for him. And notice verse 26. So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you. And again, I shared this earlier. It's a hard verse to translate. The New King James puts the word rejoicing in there. It's not a good translation. It means boast. It means boast. So that your boasting or exaltation may abound in Christ. I'm confident that I'm going to continue for your joy and progress in the faith. So that you're going to exalt Jesus when I come. When I come, you're going to give him the praise. You're going to give him the glory. So that Christ is glorified. It's all about Christ being magnified. 
Let me ask you this. Is Christ magnified in your attitude towards the things I've mentioned probably six or seven times right now? Your marriage, raising your kids, your work, your serving at church, your interactions with non-believers? Do you want Christ to be magnified? So how do we find joy in the midst of trials? In a nutshell, we need to live fully for Christ. Trusting in him, relying on him, walking with him, knowing him better, and serving him. Are you serving him? To remain on today, will that mean fruitful labor? To remain on this week, will that remain fruitful labor for you? Is it going to be fruitful because you abide in Christ and let him work out in all those things I've mentioned? You see, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. We need it so desperately. We need to be reminded, Lord God, that we are so quickly uh, distracted. We so quickly sin. Lord, and so often we can't say honestly from our hearts to live, to be living as Christ. But I pray that we would be able to. I pray that you would weed out the idols of our hearts. I pray that we would desire to see Christ exalted in every area of our lives through trusting him and obeying him in those areas. I pray we would do so. That he would be magnified and that we would glory together as Christ is magnified through the lives of his people. Father, we pray for this. And so we thank you for this morning and for your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.